Hello and welcome to the Toxpod. I'm Tim Scott. And one thing that's been a pretty hot topic across all the seasons of the podcast we've done so far is new psychoactive substances. And if you're anything like me, you probably find it hard to keep up with all the latest trends in this space. So we're going to try and help you out. This episode is the first in what we're planning to be a regular series, keeping you up to date with the latest news on NPS. And to help me out, I've got some experts on NPS who'll be joining me on these episodes. Michael Evans-Brown from EMC DDA. Welcome, Mike. Thank you very much. Connor Crean from UNODC. Welcome, Connor. Thank you, Tim. Nice to be here. And Alex Kratulski from CFSRE, whose voice you'll recognize from an episode he was on in our last season. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. Okay, since this is our first episode, I'll get each of you to introduce yourselves a bit more and tell us about your involvement with MPS. Mike, why don't you start off? Okay, so thank you very much for inviting uh, me here today. So I'm Program Manager for Risk Assessment and Risk Communication at the EMCDDA, which is the European Union's drug agency. Um, And I work in the team that's responsible for early warning and risk assessment of uh, new psychoactive substances. So for your listeners who are not familiar, Europe has had a a system in place for the last 20 years. It's a three-step system of early warning, risk assessment, and control measures that allows Europe to rapidly respond to the emerging threat posed by new psychoactive substances. So my day-to-day job is all about early warning and uh, risk assessing these substances. Great, thanks. What about you, Connor? I'm a scientific affairs officer within the Laboratory and Scientific Service of UNODC. I've been here for 10 years now, and I'm the manager of the Global Scientific and Forensic Services Support Project. And this works a lot with the forensic laboratories and forensic service providers around the world as part of the efforts that we put in place to ensure that member states have access to and use quality forensic science data, information and tools in their efforts against drugs and crime. And I look after a lot of the scientific aspects of the UNODC Early Warning Advisory on New Psychoactive Substances. And Alex? By sort of training, I'm a toxicologist and a chemist, uh, but in terms of my uh, job responsibilities, I'm an associate director at the Center for Forensic Science Research and Education, and I'm program manager for our NPS discovery program. Uh, So I've been working with NPS uh, only for about five years now, so I'm uh, relatively newer to the game, if you will. Uh, I uh, haven't been through all the different generations of drugs, but um, certainly been around and have been able to, I guess, experience from from many different perspectives, uh, at least the latest generations of NPS. Um, so our NPS discovery program started in 2018. So again, we're not uh, too old of a program, uh, but we have expanded a lot in the last couple of years. Um, again, different from EMCDDA and UNODC, our organization is a nonprofit organization. Uh, we're a relatively small organization. We only have a handful of scientists, but we try to uh, really do as much as we can to benefit the forensic science community here in the US, but then also the NPS community globally. Yeah, NPS really is a global problem. And I think between uh, the four of us here today, we're covering a fair bit of the globe. So let's just start off with setting the scene. You know, where are we now with NPS? We've seen this explosion over the last 20 years or so in the number of new compounds coming out. Do you think we've seen the peak 
in terms of the number of compounds that are coming out each year? Well, what we've seen is obviously from around the mid-2000s onwards, there was a big increase in the number of MPS being identified in Europe each year, peaking in around 2014, 2015, with 100 new substances appearing each year. So that's two new substances each week. And then since then, since around 2016 onwards, we've seen this, uh, this drop. Uh, so almost about 50 substances uh, a year now appearing on the market. So quite a sort of significant drop in the number of new substances appearing each year. Nonetheless, the market has continued to evolve, continued to become more complex. And as I'm sure we'll discuss uh, later on, we're seeing a lot more highly potent substances now, particularly new synthetic opioids and so on. So substances that are more aimed at high-risk drug users, people with problematic drug use and so on, which poses a, a number of different problems to the, the legal highs and research chemical markets that we saw during you know, 2010 onwards. So perhaps not as many compounds each year, but the, the harms that they're causing may be increasing, even though the number's not increasing. Is that a fair comment? I think so. I mean, in Europe, if you look at when we started sort of monitoring, first of all, the, it was kind of the era of imitation and esoterica. So the, the compounds that were emerging were mainly phenethylamine type substances and tryptamine. So obviously aimed at quite a small sort of user group, largely people going to dance music festivals and techno uh, raves, as well as psychonaut type uh, substances, particularly for things like uh, the tryptamines and so on. So, I mean, for the phenethylamines, we were typically looking at attempted replacement of MDMA, really. And then we saw, say, from around 2005, maybe a bit later onwards, we saw the kind of second stage in the market, which was this the real legal highs and research chemical phase, where we saw a huge number of branded products being sold openly uh, in the high street and on the internet. And then, at least in Europe, uh, as a result of increasing uh, regulatory actions, new types of uh, legislation and other types of responses, we saw, obviously, a decrease in the availability of these substances, particularly as legal highs and research chemicals. And we kind of like then entered a third stage, which um, I kind of call complexity and integration, where you're getting a more complex market and more integrated now with the established illicit drug market. So while obviously MPS have always been important in terms of their interactions with the illicit market, we're seeing growing interactions there. And one particular example that we've seen from uh, 2016 onwards was the growing number of uh, new fentanyl derivatives that are appearing on the market in Europe, being sold typically as uh, legal uh, replacements, things like heroin and so on, but then also being used sometimes as adulterants to heroin, which caused a, a number of outbreaks, and also to make occasionally, not the same situation as in the United States, but things like fake medicines containing these new fentanyl derivatives. Um, I mean, the answer here in the US, the US is we don't know. We don't know if we're seeing more drugs now in terms of NPS than we were seeing before. Part of that is because the United States has never had a concerted effort to track this information. Uh, and part of it is that we're doing a better job now than we were before. So just because we identify 50 new NPS this year doesn't mean that we're identifying more than we had last year. Uh, it's just that we haven't done uh, a good job in the past uh, as the MCDDA and, and as UNODC have done uh, in tracking that information. So uh, hopefully as the US, we're getting there. Uh, certainly, as as Mike said, the numbers 
continue. Uh, it might not be the hundred new substances a year uh, like it was five or so years ago, but uh, we are continuing to see new NPS on uh, a weekly or monthly basis from various classes. And uh, and as Mike mentioned, we'll get into some of some of why that is. But uh, but yeah, I would just throw that tidbit out there that we in the U.S. may not know. And I was just going to add, like, from the, the situation we see at the global level, kind of mirrors what, what was started off and what Mike mentioned for, for Europe. I think we first started to collect information at the global level around 2012, 2013. So it was only at that time that we got to see what the picture was globally. And I think for a number of years after that, the, the number of reports started to completely increase uh, everywhere around the world. But then I think people started to, to respond you know, I think the, the legislation that, that member states put in place nationally helped and people actually learn from each other from different legislation that they first had in the UK and other countries in Europe on generic legislation. And they started to adapt this and this led to a decrease in, in the substances that we're reporting. While we have over a thousand individual substances that have been identified to us, UNODC, we don't see a thousand substances each year. No, in fact, no country have, has identified uh, only two or three countries have found more than 500. And I would say 60 or 70 countries have only have found less than 10. So it's a very different challenge that's faced by different countries around the world. And yeah, I think this is uh, the opening of quite a few conversations that we could have on various different interacting elements of, of the challenges that are faced by not just forensic service providers, but public health and, and, and everybody, all stakeholders involved. Yeah, there's still a lot we don't know, isn't there? I mean, we... We're all becoming much more aware, but there's so much we don't know about what's happening. Uh, are, are we just finding the tip of the iceberg in terms of the things we're finding? or what, What's your sense of that? Do you think we've got a good handle on what the market actually is? Or is there a lot more going on that we don't know about? So I'd say here in the US, there are certain markets that we have a better understanding of. Uh, and it really comes down to the affected communities, right? Um, we in the U.S. have a, a very good medical legal death investigation system now, um, so we're able to track these new potent synthetic opioids. Uh, we've got large laboratories that do national work that are able to uh, sort of correlate some of this information. Um, but for us here, in the, at least here in the U.S., uh, NPS that may be uh, not causing deaths but may be causing harms or people are presenting to emergency departments, we don't really have a good uh, stronghold on that. And we don't have good numbers to know what that occurrence is, um, how prevalent some of those different drugs are. I think from, from the work that we've done in the last couple of years, we know that if we talk to those people or work with those people who are primarily initially toxicologists and seize drug laboratories, and make sure that they have the capacity to be able to identify the substances, this helps us get a clearer picture. I think in the last three years, we've been working more and more with toxicology labs and kind of trying to understand what they collect. Uh, can they collect the information that they can provide to us to give us a greater idea of the substances that are potentially of the greatest harm? Uh, and I think they can. And this gives us, in some sense, a clearer picture of what the toxicology labs are identifying and getting that information and making sure that we use this to assist the other laboratories in different countries around the world to have the capacity and the analytical techniques and the reference materials, if available, to assist them in the identification of that substance, of new uh, emerging substances. So then we get a better picture of, of what's going on in those other countries. 
Yeah, I, th I mean, I think if I mean, if you want to look at the the European perspective, it's only relatively recently, say, like in the last 10, 12 years or so on, that there's been increasing focus, certainly in terms of reporting toxicology findings. So in order to better understand the harms, not just from acute poisonings, but also from medical legal death investigations and so on. And I think that's hand in hand, obviously, with the explosion in the number of substances and and products that we that we saw certainly if you rewind the clock going back to uh, the earliest days in 1997 most of the information circulated through the early warning system was related to analytical uh, identifications of substances from uh, law enforcement seizures and so on and that partly reflects the fact that obviously there was more limited number of compounds in the market more limited sort of user groups so for us, certainly in Europe, you know, as we saw this, you know, explosion in the market, it was a case of also strengthening the systems both at national level and also at EU level to be able to identify these substances more more routinely in some cases. But also as part of that, obviously, we had to develop uh, systems that allowed us to collect data more uh, systematically in a, in a standardized way, because particularly, you know, when you're thinking about Europe, we have, uh, you know, 29 national early warning systems, which all differ in sort of structure and uh, functioning. And obviously, national legislation differs, not just in relation to MPS, but also things like the criminal justice systems and medical legal death investigations and so on. And in addition, you know, Europe's a very large place. We've got 500 million people uh, here as well. So it's always early warning is always a, a, a work in progress, you know, to develop and strengthen the systems. And fortunately, as we saw the increase in number of substances, we've been able to invest at national level and at EU level to, to strengthen these systems. And we continue to do so. And I think that over time, we have got a better understanding of really uh, you know, what is happening with new psychoactive substances and how they're integrating into different drug markets. The forensic service providers, the chemists and the toxicologists, they, they've gotten an awful lot better in the last number of years. They've had to educate ourselves. They've had to learn uh, new ways of analysing and identifying unknown substances. And I think this has contributed to strengthening the work that each of us does from UNODC, DMCDA and for the Center of Forensic Science in the, in the US. And we're responding to that by knowing more of what we know that the forensic lab laboratories need and then tailoring the way that we can assist them to, to move on and to progress a little more, to be able to contribute to the better early warnings so that it's kind of a cycle, the better early warning system information we get that then feeds out to the other uh, stakeholders in other countries who are developing these systems. The more they see the, the importance of what needs to to contribute to an early warning system and how um, valuable it is to have that input from all the different stakeholders in, in the working in, the, in this industry. I certainly, it's it's also been our perception when you when you're talking about increasing mixtures being found. So we call these MACD events. So things like miscelling, adulteration, dilution, and contamination of existing controlled drugs, but also MPS with other highly potent MPS and controlled drugs, but also other acutely toxic substances when not in Europe but in the United States uh, in 2018 when we saw bradificum being used to either well either adulterate or some for some reason uh, synthetic cannabinoid mixtures and then also I think it caught everybody by surprise when we uh, started seeing the uh, lung injuries being caused by a new diluent 
which we believe was obviously vitamin E acetate for THC vapes and so on. So the market is constantly evolving. New threats are constantly uh, emerging. And I, I think that that's really why early warning is incredibly critical for us to be able to identify these threats sort of early on and respond uh, in a timely way, because, you know, currently our systems are set up to be uh, reactive, but obviously we need to th- start to think a little bit more about how we can be sort of proactive and identify uh, potential threats before they uh, emerge. And I think that's something that we're all getting better at as we get more experience with the different types of threats that we're seeing from new psychoactive substances. It's hard to be proactive in this space because it almost involves predicting the future, which is uh, quite difficult. I mean, five years ago, would we have predicted what we're seeing now? Uh, I'm not sure we would have. And Mike, you mentioned earlier, a couple of years ago, China cracked down on fentanyl analogs. Then we saw, uh, you know, these new nitazine analogs coming out and they're still going strong. Do we have any idea what the next class of synthetic opioids might be? Are we seeing anything yet? I'm not sure we're done with the nitazine opioids uh, <laughs> yet. Uh, we're still working our way through um, uh, through that group. I think you're absolutely. I mean, in terms of being proactive, I think you're absolutely right. It is almost sometimes trying to sort of predict the future. But what we're trying to sort of look at a little bit more is this kind of scenario planning. So imagining the worst that could possibly happen and then working uh, from there as part of sort of preparedness planning in general. So whilst it may not be possible to predict which group of substances may emerge next in terms of the opioids, it's about sort of thinking about where the markets may go and what we would do if a particular group of substances did uh, emerge in the future. Yeah, I think that when you look at the trends, I mean, especially with opioids and synthetic cannabinoids, and we'll get into synthetic cannabinoids, I'm sure a little bit later, but I mean, we've seen this increasing trend and increasing potency. I mean, at a certain point, you would think that that has to plateau uh, a little bit, but um, yeah, you never know. As Mike said, we're not done with the nitazines here in the US. Uh, We're still seeing uh, many and, and more variety. Certainly, I think we all want a crystal ball, right? If we could all come together and make that crystal ball, that'd be great to figure out what's coming next. But what's important for us, especially here in the U.S., and, and as Mike mentioned, is having a strategy in place that you're there when something uh, something first occurs. And and for us in our organization, it's important for us to find that new NPS on its first instance, uh, whether that be discussions on Reddit forums, whether that be uh, in seized drug materials entering the U.S. or, or materials that are uh, seized uh, at the recreational level uh, or in those first clinical or forensic toxicology cases. If you can find that first case, that sort of uh, epicenter, you can then from there disseminate that information out rapidly and really get a hold of it early on. So maybe you're not predicting the future, but at least you're not missing the past, if you will. Uh, you're right there to to be able to respond and, and respond accurately and, and swiftly in a timely manner. And I know that I say that we are doing that. I know that EMCDDA and UNODC are obviously also doing that. Uh, this is, as you've mentioned mo- multiple times, a global effort uh, in terms of information sharing and dissemination of of our findings of from many different uh, avenues. Yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, when, when you look at the I mean, at the heart of the system in in Europe has always been analytically confirmed data on the identification of new psychoactive substances in either law enforcement seizures or or toxicology uh, samples. And obviously, it's impossible to monitor for these substances if you don't know what these substances are. And then so we have this 
uh, system where uh, when a substance is identified for the first time in Europe in a particular country and they judge it to be a new psychoactive substance, they report it to us. We analyze this information, obviously check it. And then if it is determined to meet our legal definition of what a new psychoactive substance is in Europe, we formally notify it on behalf of the country and then uh, immediately this is disseminated to our network across Europe, who then disseminate it nationally to their uh, laboratories, but also other law enforcement, public health agencies and so on. And so that this substance can then be included in uh, laboratory monitoring as soon as possible. But it also allows the public health agencies, for example, to think about what preparedness planning they may need to do uh, in their own country as a result of this substance emerging on the market. So, for example, if we're thinking about some of the fentanyl derivatives at a public health level, you may need to assess, obviously, what the current state of the opioid market is in your particular area and whether there's likely to be an influx of these new uh, fentanyl derivatives in your local market and what you may need to do as a result in order to either prevent that in terms of things like coordination with law enforcement, but also legislation, but also things like more public health orientated and harm reduction elements in terms of making uh, services and people who use these substances aware of that, but also in terms of provision of things like naloxone and so on where relevant. So Mike, I, I certainly uh, agree with you in terms of obviously that scientific data and that scientific evidence is what is key uh, and vital really for everything uh, that we do. But I think one thing that uh, is interesting is, is still gaining information uh, it may not be analytically confirmed information, but gaining information uh, that comes over, whether it be on the on the surface web, on the on the gray web, on the on the dark uh, net markets, uh, and trying to correlate some of this information. And and one thing that I think about when I think about that is currently the state of synthetic cannabinoids. So, Tim, as you mentioned, what does the the future look like like for some of these classes uh, for synthetic cannabinoids? I think uh, we're in a little bit of a, a gray area. Now, with the, the passage of a recent uh, class ban by China, I guess a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago, we didn't really know what the future of synthetic cannabinoids was going to be uh, when, the, when the majority of the generations that we're seeing fall under this class-wide ban. Uh, now, today, we do know a little bit better because we are starting to see new substances that are not included within that ban. Um, but I bring this up in terms of not having analytical information is that sometimes we hear about these new NPS or we see them on the internet. We haven't analytically confirmed them yet, but there's a lot that we have to do before we actually find them in our laboratories. We may want to preemptively make drug standards. We may want to preemptively talk about how we're going to name these substances so that way we can communicate them uh, once we actually do see them in our lab. So uh, certainly having that analytical information is really important, but so is uh, having some of that maybe anecdotal or, or non-confirmed, if you will, information, because that really can be the next generation. And that's something that we're going to ultimately have to address as new generations uh, of substances emerge, uh, and especially as they emerge online before they emerge in our laboratories. One of the things that we've noticed over the years, maybe starting off on the subject of synthetic cannabinoids, is that this is one of the groups that, that took off dramatically, almost as a response to generic legislation that had been put in place. It was only uh, within a short space of time that several countries that had generic legislation, mostly in, in Europe, 
certain types of different functionalities appeared in synthetic cannabinoids that completely bypassed this legislation. And it kind of opened the door to a much larger wave of variety and diversity within, the, within this class. Uh, we, we produced a manual for the laboratories uh, to assist in the analysis in 2013. We just revised it this year or last year because it was out of date. So we have over 300 synthetic cannabinoids that have been reported at this stage, but they're not all around. But you know what we know that we have to put into the manuals for the laboratories is, okay, if you're looking for them, this is the analytical uh, things that you need to have in place to be able to not just identify substances, but discriminate between positional isomers. If you need to use uh, structural elucidation to find out what a new substance is, if you don't have a reference material, these are the tools that you can use not everybody has them available, but these are the tools that you can use. So I think this, this allows us to get a better idea, not necessarily the ones that are new, but the ones that, that were new several years ago and that are still there, that, that persist. I think that one of the things we've seen internationally in the work that, that Mike, Mike mentioned, the International Drug Conventions a few years ago, since, since 2015 up to this year, we've scheduled... 68 substances have been placed, 68 MPS have been placed under international control. Um, and if we look at the number of reports of all of the thousand substances that, that we have seen, these 68 represent maybe 30, 40% of all of those reports. So in a sense, there, there's a process for identifying the substances that, are, um, that appear and persist. Uh, whether or not in many cases there is complete and comprehensive evidence on their, their potential for harm, this is questionable in some cases, but I think that what the, the expert committee on drug dependence of the WHO who analyzes uh, substances for potential inclusion in the conventions, the, the guidelines that they have in place and the work that they do assesses um, if the substances, in particular opioids in the last few years and uh, some of the synthetic cannabinoids that have been scheduled recently, these are harmful. So they do warrant international control. So this new class of uh, synthetic cannabinoids that you mentioned, Alex, do we know much about them beyond their structures and, and some names? Uh, so we're seeing now uh, new linker groups. Uh, so one of the new groups we've seen is these hydrazid linkers, uh, which we're calling the oxazid class. Uh, we have actually seen these in casework. We are working to confirm them. We're working to uh, have our uh, manufacturers develop standards so we can confirm these new substances. Uh, we don't have any of that data yet, but again, it's important to name these so we can communicate about them before they emerge. Uh, we've certainly seen the, the fluoropental pyrazole cores, uh, so the things like 5-fluor-AB, the puffupica, we're starting to see now on, on surface web manufacturer uh, websites, uh, sort of the more gray market or illicit market manufacturer websites, we're starting to see uh, now that instead of having the carboxyamide linker, you're actually adding another carbon in there to make it the uh, acetamide uh, linker. So certainly we're, we're seeing variety here that will get around this class-wide ban and uh, it's something that we're trying to to figure out as quickly as we can. Some of these new synthetic cannabinoids that are emerging, like every other generation that has emerged, some of these new these new synthetic cannabinoids do come from pharmaceutical or research patent or research uh, literature or, uh, or patents that have been been submitted. We are 
trying to do a deep dive and anyone who has done this knows that it's very difficult to do a deep dive into the patent literature and 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 the pharmaceutical company research papers from the 60s and 70s and whatnot it can be very challenging um so we're trying to do a deep dive we know some of them did appear in those early patents and literature but some of them we don't know yet they may or may not have appeared uh, some people might already have an answer to that uh if i had more hours in a day, maybe I could already have an answer to that. But the short answer is certainly that there are some some of the drugs we know some things about. Uh, we have an, an indication from uh, from users. Uh, it may be anecdotal. It may not be confirmed that uh, that they're not getting the high that they're expecting from taking some of these new drugs. Uh, that could be due to differences in potency. It could be due to differences in amount. I mean, we don't know how much. Uh, we, we, I would assume that the amount that's being uh, sprayed onto these plant-like materials is probably the same, but we just don't know. There's a lot to learn. I, I mentioned this to someone the other day, and this is really how I feel. I feel like the synthetic cannabinoid class is starting all over. I feel like we've almost wiped everything out. Luckily, we have the infrastructure in place. We have the analytical capabilities. We have the communication networks. We have everything we need. We have the bioassays. We can study potency. We can look at activity. We can track toxicity, all of this. However, we are really starting from the beginning and, and trying to figure out, are these substances even active? Are they potent? Can they cause toxicity? When are they going to start emerging? Where are they going to appear? Uh, and that's sort of where we're at now. And again, that all, that all links back to um, this international control. Well, that raises an interesting question, Alex, maybe a bit of a controversial question. Are we actually making a difference in this space? We've been doing this for 20 years. We've been trying to tackle NPS, as Alex says, maybe in some senses with the SINCANs where we're starting again with a new class. Are we making a difference? Are we accomplishing the goals that we're trying to accomplish? Certainly, the thought has come across my mind, especially when you looked at fentanyl analogs. I felt like uh, at least from the toxicologist and chemist perspective, we knew a lot about fentanyl analogs. We knew what substances were potent. We knew which ones were less potent. We knew how to characterize them. And when fentanyl analogs were scheduled here in the U.S. in 2018, we saw a sharp decline. And that was, again, we had to sort of relearn what the new substances were going to be. And it was going to be the nitazine analogs. And those ended up, some of them ended up being more potent than the fentanyl analogs that we were seeing. So certainly the question can be asked of, are we helping or are we hurting the situation? I think ultimately when you have substances that are creating harm, there really is no other option than to try and do everything you can to stop those harms. I mean, I think, yeah, it's it's about, from the perspective of our work, it's about protecting public health. And, you know, there is this issue that, you know, if a drug is controlled, you know, now, now we live uh, in an era where it's possible to have four, five, six, uh, you know, replacement substances. I don't think many people would argue having carfentanil uh, widely available uh, and freely available, it would ever be a good thing in terms of uh, public health. So I think that the main focus is obviously reducing availability and helping protect public health. And that's what the system is geared up to do in Europe in terms of early warning and, and risk assessment and ultimately reducing the availability of these substances. One thing I do want to add, though, too, is that Regardless of whether or not new substances are emerging, potency is changing, the one good thing that has come from this is that users are now more aware. You have more information that's available. People can cater their use patterns. People can go and seek help or find information that they couldn't find before. And 
certainly from a harm reduction perspective, that's always good, regardless of whether or not the new substances are coming, uh, continuing to emerge. The information that we have and the information that we're able to disseminate now is helpful uh, from a number of perspectives. One of the things that we've noticed in the last couple of years is that engaging with them with the different stakeholders, correct the correct stakeholders at the right level. So if we were getting a lot of information from uh, seized drugs laboratories about the substances that they were identifying and strengthening that connection with the toxicology laboratories, finding out from them what information they collect, what information do they need, what can they share. Connor, you've been involved in setting up the tox portal at UNODC. A lot of our listeners are toxicologists, and some of them will be aware of it, but some of them may not be. Just tell us a bit about how that tox portal works. Yeah, so this we, we just started um, following a, a general assembly in New York meeting in 2016. So there was a, a recognition of the need to identify persistent, prevalent, and harmful substances. Uh, so as part of this, we we got a, we got together. Uh, an expert group meeting of toxicologists. We brought them to Vienna. We sat around for two or three days and we asked them, what, what do they need? What information do they need? And what information can they share with us? So we, we created a, a portal within the early warning system that allows the laboratories to submit case information, whether it's a true an online reporting form or true provision of a, an Excel file with, with a large volume of case information. They can provide that information to us on a, still on a voluntary level, and this gets submitted into the early warning system, which the laboratories can then go into themselves and they can search for uh, case information on substances in what matrices they were found, in what methods were used to identify them, what other substances were present. We also use this as a tool to, to link the laboratories together if they want to communicate and find out about what methodologies other people are using. Um, and then we generate um, quarterly reports that uh, provides an update to the laboratories about what we're seeing as what are the most persistent uh, challenges that they're facing at the moment. So this is um, something that we're always constantly trying to collect more data from, from people, but we're trying to do more better outreach to laboratories to find out what barriers they may face to the provision of information and what value they would get if they do give us this information so they get more benefit for them in the work that they do. Yeah, it really is crucial to get that buy-in from the practitioners, the forensic practitioners. It's hard work sometimes to invest in these things, but it's worth it. I don't think there's ever been such a great need as now is to invest in early warning systems. The growing globalization of the drug markets means that a threat that's identified in one area is a threat to another area as well. So I, I mentioned earlier at the beginning, you know, the uh, the case in the US in 2018 of bradificum contaminating uh, synthetic cannabinoids. We still don't know the reason behind this, but we do know that the markets for synthetic cannabinoids are globalized. And so potentially it could have posed uh, a threat to Europe. The same with obviously vitamin E acetate in terms of uh, the lung injury outbreak that there was in the United States. And I think also, I mean, we've touched a, li- a little bit on this. We're seeing these these new products um, that not, aren't necessarily these, you know, attractive products that we saw with the legal high movements, but things like benzo dope, scrar dope, and trank dope in the U.S. and Canada. And of course, we have to have a better understanding of why these mixtures are emerging because it, this is both controlled drugs being mixed with NPS, which is 
a relatively kind of like new phenomenon and a growing phenomenon and they seem to be causing you know a lot of a lot of harm so even if the substance itself may not necessarily kind of reach that uh, level of need to be controlled internationally they're being uh, a whole range of these MPS are being used to produce mixtures or to produce fake uh, falsified counterfeit medicines and so on and so it's a case of, of going just beyond looking at substances that are going to perhaps need control at international level to sort of have an understanding of everything that's going on the market on, on the MPS market. Yeah, I think that's probably a great uh, a note to finish on for this first episode. But um, I will put links to uh, some of the various websites of these organizations and some of the tools and things in the show notes. And if you're a toxicologist or a drug chemist, someone whose work is involved with MPS, get involved in these early warning systems. That's my encouragement to you because there's no point having data, as Alex was saying before, that you're just sitting on. We can all benefit from sharing this data with each other. So if you're listening out there and you haven't taken advantage of some of these tools or you, you've got data that you're not sharing, I know sometimes there's confidentiality restrictions and things like that, find a way to try and share some of this data because it really is so important for us all to get a handle on uh, what's going on with these NPS. So thanks very much for joining me, guys. It's been a great conversation. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, uh, and just Tim. one final shout out. Uh, I know that we sit here, the three of us, but we have a uh, great teams here at CFSRE, at EMCDDA, and at UNODC. So it wouldn't be possible without uh, the numerous people that help us and that feed into our organization. So a big shout out to them and a huge thank you to all the work that they do. Absolutely. Uh, great, great. Thanks, Tim. Thanks very much. Great. And uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation in the next episode. We're going to aim to do these NPS updates a couple of times a year. And if you want to get in touch with us at the ToxPod, you can email us at toxpod at tf.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.